Hello, everybody. Welcome to the very last episode of the Ivory Flower podcast season two, God Complex. This would be the eighth episode. I think it's past time I mercifully end this season and this theme. It's interesting to look back at the episodes of this season and note the ever-decreasing amount of effort and excitement I would apply if and when the next season of this podcast starts up. I think it will have to be unconstrained in theme. But then the first season was kind of all over the place in that way, and that's why I decided to make this season so focused. So the pendulum, it swings back and forth, doesn't it? Such is life, apparently, and every time I think I see the pendulum, I lose sight of it pretty quickly, only to see it swinging right back into my face as I gasp in frustration, my teeth knocked out. FYI, it seems most likely that, at least at the start, the next podcast series would be about what it's like being Asian. <laughs> uh, I intend it to be more interesting than it sounds. Uh, and yes, it is a little bit topical at the moment, I suppose, but uh, I've been thinking a lot about that. So, All right, so for this final episode of God Complex, let's talk about the Hellraiser series. Uh, the Hellraiser series was created by Clive Barker. He's an English fantasy horror novelist. He's written a lot of stuff. Hellraiser, the Hellraiser universe just being, you know, one among his many works. And in fact, most of the Hellraiser content out there probably isn't really, not officially approved by him. You know how that works, though. Hellraiser is lodged pretty deeply within the nostalgia section of my brain more so than most of the other pieces discussed in this podcast, I think. I wouldn't call it one of my favorite things of all time, but it was uh, formative for me, and I have that positive nostalgia reaction when I see it referenced, which seems to be happening more often now than it has in my recollection. So Pinhead is the primary character of the Hellraiser series, and you probably have a vague sense of what he looks like. He's got a bunch of pins all over his head like needles. Uh, they're arranged immaculately, evenly spaced all over his face and bald head. Just looking at him, you might feel disgust and horror, but also some degree of compulsion because he looks so well-ordered and actually a bit uh, cherubic, uh, at least until he speaks. Cherubic. Cherubic? Uh, but then even his voice has a sort of calm quality that most horror monsters seem to lack. This is a relatively unique take on a horror villain, I think, uh, because usually you find that they try to exploit our fear of the disordered or chaotic or, well, gory. And although, yeah, quite a bit of Pinhead's allies and, and activities do end up being gory, um, Pinhead himself I would argue, at least in appearance, is horrific by way of purity, by way of something so seemingly perfect and undisturbed that you know it's wrong. It's sort of like that idea that if you heard uh, the name, the true name, or saw the face of God, that, that you would like blow up because it's so just so beyond that it actually causes damage. Okay. Stop now and Google this real quick. Uh, Gottnick Pinhead. So 
Gottmik is spelled G-O-T-T-M-I-K. Pinhead is spelled how it sounds. Uh, Gottmik is a recent RuPaul's Drag Race finalist who showed us a drag version of what she reimagined Pinhead would look like uh, in one of her final runway outfits. Um, that was really a delightful surprise to see, and it's actually, it looks really nice. Uh, and so instead of the pins, her head is encased in a matrix of uh, Swarovski crystals. More on the relationship between drag and horror in a bit. Actually, you know, I think I wrote that a while ago, and I don't think I'm going to talk a lot about drag and horror. Well, if I remember to. Okay, so as I said, I gasped when I saw her wearing that. I mean, one would gasp seeing Pinhead anywhere, but just look it up. I definitely gasped when, as a child, I encountered a life-sized Pinhead cardboard cutout at the local Blockbuster. Every time I went to that Blockbuster, I avoided that area where I knew, you know, Pinhead was waiting for me. And I would walk by that area just kind of glimpsing the side of the 2D cardboard cutout, and I knew, I knew what it was, and I knew that my doom lay in that direction. It seems strange, though, that I that I wanted to watch, that made me want to watch the movies. But maybe not that strange when you when you think about how curiosity and terror and fear and pleasure kind of make a nice casserole. Uh, Pinhead does frequently talk about the thin line between pain and pleasure, and between attraction and revulsion. He often speaks of the purity and the rapture of pain so all-encompassing that you are lost in it kind of like when you have an orgasm uh, well i admit i i don't think i'll ever enjoy pain as much as pinhead does but those gray areas those borderlands are where uh, i would argue artistic people live um, sociopaths also live there though so there's a lot of care to be had when you're exploring those gray areas, but it's an attractive neighborhood, you know, mo modestly priced. And once you look at this conflation between pleasure and pain, or maybe conflation is not the right word, I guess relationship between pleasure and pain, you think, oh, well, there are a lot of people, um, what am I trying to say? I guess it, it, it makes me think about how quickly we kind of revert to binary thought and how limiting it can be. I feel like there are a lot of people who are obsessed with binary thought and get so used to it that they grow fearful or angry at the suggestion of grayness. Um, I'm included in that, in that bunch. I mean, as I said at the beginning, I often think I'm getting to where I'm thinking in a, maybe a new or better way, but then I'm back where I started with that pendulum and the binary thought and all that. But um, anyway, so if you have art that is not clearly, you know, holy or demonic, uh, you're almost worse to these people. You're aberrant. So, for instance, Christians know to love pictures of Jesus and hate pictures of Satan, but maybe they're not so sure what to do with pictures of Justin Timberlake. So, to make things easy, some of them just say like, everything but Jesus is demonic, which is such a boring, lazy, and childish worldview. Anyway, uh, on the topic of my enjoyment of pain, uh, just so you know, I have a pretty low threshold, apparently. I used to hang out with this group of fetish enthusiasts, and 
I went to this club once and I got caned a little bit and the caning lady said that I tapped out very quickly. From my knowledge anyway, there, there may have been a back room or something I wasn't aware of, but it was, you know, it, it, was, it wasn't like at a secret place. It was like right by a, um, I think an old Navy, if I recall correctly. But anyway, uh, quick plug for the next season. And I'll talk more about what it was like uh, being an Asian person in a community that's largely white. Uh, I, I've intentionally put myself in positions like that before, I think for maybe interesting reasons. Um, interesting to me anyway, you know, which is always the case with any of this content, right? I mean, anyway. Um, so yeah, I've, I've been in a lot of those communities by choice often. And um, that fetish community was, was one of them, even though that was in Sacramento. So this isn't a, a racially, this is a racially diverse area, but for reasons I, I'll get into, the fetish community was largely white. All right, so Pinhead used to be just a plain old hedonist man who reached the pinnacle of some ex some kind of, of sense experience when he solved what looks like a gold-plated Rubik's Cube. It has all these weird etchings on it. And this is what is called the Lamont configuration in the Hellraiser universe. And it's the doorway into Pinhead's realm. And so basically these, these uh, what would you call them? I guess hedonist explorers are, the, you know, the same type of people who are, who are always looking for the Holy Grail and things like that, you know, end up finding this little Rubik's Cube thing that like promised to unlock the furthest realms of pleasure and then they solve it. And then Pinhead comes and he's like, Oh shit, man, you're in for it now. <laughs> but anyway, um, so yeah, it's a door to wherever Pinhead is from. And so the movies are just basically about the variety of people who get caught up in hedonism or even religious fervor. And they end up with this puzzle box and then they meet Pinhead and, and usually they regret it. And in case you think God can help, uh, Pinhead likes to mock Christianity, which also excited me as a kid. Such a taboo. And here was a demon-like being who mocked Christ and didn't react to all the, the righteous spiritual, you know, um, what is it? Uh, what's that line from Exorcism? Or, oh my god, the Exorcist. Uh, the, the power of Christ compels you, right? Uh, Pinhead doesn't care, you know, if you say stuff like that to him. And as a little scared Christian kid, I thought like, whoa, there's a demon who Christ can't beat. Yeah, at the same time, a lot of the gaudy, elaborate fetish gear that Pinhead and his friends wear feature these overtones of, of religious iconography and clothing. Uh, it recalls the severe, bloody, dank atmosphere of an old church. It recalls self-flagellation, which is kind of one of the logical conclusions of, Bible, of biblical teachings, in, in a sense. And Pinhead loves flagellation. What strange bedfellows, the, the devout who worship brightness and or darkness and the seemingly opposed deities that inhabit those realms. Uh, actually, I'm, I'm reading this. I'm, I'm actually not sure what I meant by that. So let's move on. Um, <laughs> I suppose another thing I've touched on a few times over the course of God Complex is the idea that just as it's easier with a spoonful of sugar, any serious business is leavened and lubricated by stuff that's less demanding. So if you want to convince someone to read Finnegan's Way, you, you know, you tell them you'll kiss them real good for every 10 pages they read or something like that, you know. 
And horror is, is a little bit like that, and it can be a vehicle for a lot of interesting concepts, even though it's clothed in a very sweet, uh, gratifying skin, I guess. <laughs> um, it's also oddly cyclical in this way that, let me try to explain. It, it's content by nature. Horror content by nature is disturbing and dark, and so you might be confronting themes of evil at face value, like, say, uh, The Exorcist. And then you get camp and horror that's not meant to be horrifying so much as a just a fertile ground for other structures and themes. Like, I mean, Rocky Horror Picture Show is a nice example of something that that's clothed, clothed in the tropes of, of the horror genre, but it's not really about horrific things. And then, you know, there's M. Night Shyamalan who, um, you know, tries to play with horror themes all the time, but usually fails. So you have this thing that started off, this genre that started off as, as horrific objects projecting horrific themes. And then those objects start projecting more diverse or unusual themes like Rocky Horror Picture Show. And then you even drop that seriousness of having a theme of any kind and then you're in just like meaningless campy horror like uh, bird there's a movie called bird demic or you know some slasher movie that just doesn't mean anything um, but then in once you're in camp you might fully reverse around back to the original horrific theme in particular like the movie the cabin in the woods does uh, i recommend the cabin in the woods even though it, it was created by joss whedon and, and I'll just say this, I, I hated Joss Whedon before he got into all the Me Too trouble, before that. Uh, yeah, I never really got why everyone loves Buffy, sorry. Uh, anyway, um, <laughs> I'm now trying to think of what the next revolution after campy horror with horrific themes is. Like, what's, what's at the, the next thing, the next twist after something like Cabin in the Woods? In theory, it would be a campy horror projecting non-horror themes and then after that uber campy horror projecting oh what the fuck anyway um what's funny is that if you if you look at m night Shyamalan's career he hits a lot of those different varieties of horror which is you know as much as i kind of disrespect him that's interesting that he has so he's touched on so many different types of horror maybe i'm too mean to him nah so that, that was supposed to be my last thought before moving on to the conclusion of this episode and s season. But a few days after I wrote most of this podcast, I watched the new episode of Rick and Morty. And wouldn't you know it, they did a Hellraiser episode. Like I said, a lot of Hellraiser seems to be floating around these days. It must be in the bloodstream of Mr. Zeitgeist or I don't know. Uh, so first, I, I take issue with the way Rick and Morty dealt with Hellraiser. They really focused on the apparent nonsense that pinhead loves pain because then they say well if he does love pain then that means it's pleasure to him and so both concepts are meaningless but i i think that viewpoint is very limited it's uh, kind of something i kind of hinted at before a too binary way to look at what pinhead is all about but i guess i'll just let it go um in short though generally uh, I, I feel like a person should be careful to equate things when they're not really equivalent of, ugh. I mean, you hear that all the time now with the false equivalents with the Trump and the politics, so. Yeah, breaking news, right? Um, also, just because one thing implies or is strongly identified with the other 
it doesn't mean they're entirely and exactly related. So, for instance, you know, you'd have a real hard time saying a person is the opposite of another person. It just, you can't, the whole idea of like the bizarro world where everything's the opposite is kind of about that idea. And it's really funny and it can be fun to think about, but there's really no such thing as, as an opposite person. I mean, a person with certain objects like numbers, sure, of course there are well-defined and exact opposites. But people and con emotions, concepts like pleasure and pain, that's, uh, you know, we get into trouble all the time by objectifying humans and, and talking about them as if they were numbers. So it's the same thing with emotions. I mean, you, you can say that certain emotions tend to occur in contrast to other ones, sure. But, but to be as ex an exact of an opposite so that you could talk to them as if, talk about them as if they were positive and negative numbers, it's really reductive and... I, okay, I won't get into the word reductive now, maybe another time. Anyway, um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, I also became extremely embarrassed um, while thinking about Rick and Morty because my most recent spec script, uh, a spec script is when you write an original story using existing characters because you want to be a writer. And I'm embarrassed that I chose Rick and Morty to do that with because it's, it's just past the time when a new writer should be coming up with Rick and Morty ideas. It's sort of sort of pathetic. But. Okay, now for my random final paragraph. It's nice to know that this impulse to recognize redemption in the typically distressing, that that little bit of rot in perfume, you know, I think they like actually put rotten smells or a little, little bit of a shit smell in perfume. There's like, uh, I forgot what that concept is called, but the, the something that you usually think is is just a positive experience that it that it can be enhanced by a little dash of something gross that that little rot that little grayness um, I um, I think it's makes me think of what some of us might feel like as we um, pa pass away and that that despite the fact that we we go into something that we have no idea of and it, it does seem to be negative and painful to lose all, all the connections you ever had and, and consciousness to boot. That a person could look toward something like that and believe they're ready, believe that there's something, something not entirely bad about it. It seems it's hard to take that away from a human, that um, obstinate hope. So. I really hope I have obstinate hope. Um, you know, I could use a lot more obstinate hope these days. I probably most people could. And I wish obstinate hope upon all of you lovely two listeners. Uh, so good night and, and talk to you soon, I hope, uh, eventually. But that's it for God Complex and probably for this podcast for a little while. So um, good night.